1 Peter as we continue our sermon series in this letter. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. The text is also up here on the screen for you. I invite you to keep that text in front of you, and we're just going to be working through this together. Please give attention to God's holy word. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. I'm going to walk to the piano and get my water, and then we're going to come back and pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So that when the rains come, when the storms come, we can stand firm and not be shaken. Because we are in him and in his kingdom. Work this in our hearts this morning as we come to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Enrique Olvera is a Mexican chef. He's the head chef at Puyol in Mexico City. Last year, it was rated as the 13th best restaurant in the world. Uh, He began cooking in high school to impress his girlfriend, and he just fell in love with cooking, and he started hosting dinner parties for his friends, and the food ended up being so good that even the parents were coming to the dinner parties to eat his food, and that's when he realized, maybe I should do this cooking thing for a living. And so he went to New York City to study. He came back to Mexico City, opened up a restaurant, Puyol, and after a very slow start, it started gaining momentum. It was gaining recognition, But as Olvera puts it, still something was not right. There was something that I didn't feel connected to. Most of my inspiration at that point 
were American chefs that had started the new American cuisine. So if you looked at my dishes, they kind of looked like that, except I was using Mexican ingredients because that's what I had available. But the turning point came when another well-known chef in Mexico City was honest with him and told Overa, look, you're a really good cook. You're great, but you're not making Mexican food. You're using Mexican ingredients, but in a very shy way. You should know your culture better, and you have a responsibility as a Mexican cook to do Mexican food. He'd been using Mexican ingredients, but he hadn't been making Mexican food. And Olvera says, I never forgot that. I realized what we were cooking was not authentic. And when I thought about Mexican food, I thought about tacos and tostadas and mole. We weren't making that. Why weren't we serving that kind of food? We weren't being true to who we were. And once he began cooking Mexican food, he says, everything changed. And the restaurant took off to cook as he was really meant to cook, Olvera needed to rediscover, to reconnect to who he really was. Likewise, I think we see from this passage, if we as Christians are going to live as God has meant us to live, instead of just using all of our Christian ingredients in a very shy way, we've got to reconnect to who we really are as God's people. We need to rediscover who we really are. We need to reconnect to our heritage as God's people, to live as God has really meant us to live. We need to know who we really are. And in this passage, Peter tells us who we really are with two main descriptions. You see those in verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Who are we as God's people, as the church? We are first living stones in a spiritual house. Secondly, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Living stones in a spiritual house and then a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. And I was thinking as I was looking at these identity markers of God's people I think I need to reconnect to this. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning and roll out of bed and fix my coffee and and eat my breakfast and start driving to work thinking, how am I going to be a priest today? I just don't think in these categories, but, but according to God's word, we should. So let's reconnect to who we really are from this passage this morning. First, living stones in a spiritual house. So right from the beginning of this passage, we see that to understand who we really are as Christians, makes sense, we have to come to Jesus Christ. Who we really are is found only in him. You see that in verse four. As you come to him, which we know from the context of speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you come to him. And it's not a one-time coming, it's a continual coming. It's coming again and again and again. So to know who we really are, to live as we're really meant to live, we've got to keep coming back again and again and again to who Jesus Christ is. So you see in verse 5, our identity as living stones is founded on Jesus' identity in verse 4 as the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we need to look at what does it mean for Jesus to be the living stone? What does it mean? 
Well, Peter reconnects us to our heritage. Uh, He takes us back to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, We saw last week from the beginning of the chapter that uh, God's people are to, to crave the word of God with the same intensity of desire that a newborn baby craves its mother's milk. We are feeling keenly that desire at night right now. (laughs) A newborn baby craving its mother's milk, that's how we're to approach the the word of God with the same intensity and desire. And so I think it's only fitting that when you come to the next passage, this passage is just dripping with milk from the Old Testament scriptures. It's soaked. Peter takes us back to our heritage. He reconnects us with the word of God. So let's look at these Old Testament scriptures that Peter quotes in verses six through eight showing Jesus to be the living stone. Uh, The first in verse 6 is from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You go back to the context of Isaiah chapter 28, where this verse comes from. God is angry with his people. He's not happy. Old Testament Israel, God's people, they were, they were self-indulgent. There's even one place in that chapter in verse 7 where, where Isaiah talks about the prophets and the priests drunk on wine and beer and vomiting all over the tables. Just imagine if you walked in this morning and found Archie and myself and the elders doing that on the communion table. You can understand why God would be displeased with that. He was not happy with his people. <laughs> They're self-indulgent, they're prideful, they're rejected and despise the word of the Lord. They're trusting in their own strength and not in the Lord for their salvation. And so God, deservedly, rightly, promises that judgment is coming. A catastrophic storm of judgment is going to come and sweep all of that away. But in the midst of that storm of judgment, this verse shines as a ray of hope. The storm of destruction is coming, but God is laying a cornerstone in Zion and Jerusalem, chosen and precious. And that cornerstone is going to withstand that storm of destruction. And whoever is built on that stone, whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever believes in him will be saved, will be spared, will not be put to shame. The second passage Peter quotes is in verse 7, and that's from Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, we used Psalm 18 in our call to worship this morning. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness, of God's love for his people to deliver his people out of their distress to save them. The Jews identified that stone, that cornerstone in both of these passages with the coming Messiah, with God's chosen king who would bring a lasting and complete salvation and deliverance to God's people for all time. And Jesus arrives and he says, I'm the Messiah. In his confrontation with the Jewish leaders of the day, he claimed to be that Messiah. He identifies himself as the stone. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's in all three of them, he he quotes from this very verse. Jesus says to them, to the religious leaders, to the Jewish leaders, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Peter, the one who wrote this letter, following 
His Lord and his master, Jesus, identifies that stone before the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So it's an important image for Peter. He brings it in here again in this letter. So the stone, Jesus, is rejected by the builders, the Jewish leaders, and that leads to his death by crucifixion, his death on the cross. But God raises him from the dead and makes him the cornerstone, the foundation of his church. He brings salvation from God's judgment for all who believe in him. Just as Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And again, Peter in this letter identifies Jesus as that cornerstone. So what does it mean for us this morning for Jesus to be the cornerstone? Why does he bring that in? What's he teaching us? Well, first, you can rejoice in suffering. You can rejoice even in suffering. Look at verse seven and how Peter applies this. He says, the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. Think about who Peter's writing to. He's writing to first century Christians who are being shamed for that very belief in Jesus, who are being persecuted for that belief in Jesus, who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter's reminding them that they're facing that shame and rejection because Christ himself faced that shame and rejected, and they're identified with him. And so it's an encouragement And so when, when we face shame and rejection, many around the world face it very intensely. We may only face it mildly here, at least for now. But either way, Peter says, don't be surprised. Think of what Christ went through. He was shamed. He was rejected. And you're found in him. Your identity is in him. Don't you think that you can expect the same in your own life if you're following him? In chapter 4, he puts it this way, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When you're shamed and rejected, whatever level of intensity that may be, here and in your own life, by a friend, a neighbor, by the world around you, consider it an honor. Peter says, because if who you really are is found in Jesus, you're not only identified with him in his death, you're identified with him in his resurrection. He's a living stone. And we're living stones in him. We've been raised from death to life. We have the hope of resurrection glory one day, despite the suffering that we experience here and now. So we can find joy even in our trials and our suffering. For Christ to be your cornerstone means you can rejoice in suffering. Secondly, what does it mean for Christ to be the cornerstone? You can't walk away from Jesus. You can't walk away from Jesus. And you say, what do you mean? Of course you can walk away from Jesus. We think of the the children who grow up in the church and and profess faith in Christ and seem to be be very sincere in their belief. And then then as adults, they fall away from from the faith. They're walking away from Jesus, right? There are plenty of people who are familiar with the message of Christianity and just choose to follow a different faith, a different religion. Even in Scripture, we see that would-be followers of Jesus 
when his teaching gets very difficult to understand or difficult to accept, they turn away from following him. Think about in John chapter 6 when Jesus has, has fed the 5,000 with the, the bread and the fish, and the crowds are very pleased with that, and, and they're following Jesus. He's, he's provided for their needs. But then he starts teaching, and he starts saying things like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will inherit eternal life. And many in the crowd say, okay, this is getting a little weird. I'm out of here. That's enough. And they turn away from Jesus. Are they not walking away from Jesus? Even in this passage, it says that there are people who reject him. So what do I mean? Well, in verse seven, you see that Peter makes a contrast between those who believe and those who do not believe. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, for those who do not come to Christ, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He's a stone in, the, in your path that you cannot step over, that you cannot walk around. Because his kingdom's filling the whole earth. You can't walk away from Jesus. You're either going to be built on him or you're going to stumble over him. Jesus is either going to hold you up or he's going to crush you. I know that's a hard thing to say. I'm just saying what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 21, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. So there's no shrugging your shoulders with Jesus. There's no take it or leave it with Jesus. There's no that's fine for you but not for me with Jesus. You can't walk away from him. And I want us to think about that this morning as we come to God's word, the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, the teaching of God's word. Uh, we often come to the, to the word of God praying that God will change us. But what we really mean by that is that God will change us for the better because we don't ever leave the word of God unchanged. The word of God is always changing us. It's either changing us for the better or it's changing us for the worse. It's either bringing blessing as you believe and build your life on it or it's bringing judgment as you disbelieve it and reject and despise it just as Israel did but we never leave the word of God the same. Whatever you may think of what's being said right now, don't walk away just shrugging your shoulders, please. Don't walk away saying I can take it or leave it. You can't walk away from Jesus. Lastly, what does it mean for Jesus to be the cornerstone uh, you can rejoice in suffering, you can't walk away from Jesus, and you can't grow apart from the church. You can't grow apart from the church. So let's go back to verse five. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The cornerstone was the first stone laid in the foundation of a building. It's the stone by which all the other stones are measured by and fit in with. All the other stones are lined up with it, which means if you're coming to Jesus as the cornerstone, that means that you're coming to the building. You can't have one without the other. 
By building, I mean the people of God, not, the, not this building. The spiritual house. You can't have one without the other. There's no, there's no me and Jesus, or just me and Jesus, I should say. Sure, we have personal relationship with Jesus, but there's no just me and Jesus. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I think even those of us who have a high view of the church, and, and the people in this church do, and I appreciate that. But I think we can even fall prey to, to our culture, to our American individualism that I think sometimes sees the church more as a spiritual quarry than a spiritual house, a spiritual rock pile. So we have all these Christian ingredients that the church provides. We have our worship experiences. We have our Bible studies and small groups. We have our online sermons and blogs. And then we take all these Christian ingredients and we use them to build up our own spirituality instead of building up the household of God. So worship becomes about my own personal experience, about my tastes in music. I'll attend a small group or a Bible study as long as it's meeting my needs and holding my interest. If something or someone disappoints me or challenges me, I can just move on. But, but that's not a spiritual house. That's not growth. That's a rock pile. It's only as, as you grow to maturity as you as a living stone are being chiseled are being molded, are being shaped to fit together with the other stones that you truly experience growth. If you're just out there on your own, you're going to stay the same. There's nothing to to chisel you. There's nothing to mold you. There's nothing to shape you. So this spiritual house grows by way of new converts as they come and are baptized in the body of Christ, but it also comes as as the living stones who are already here grow to maturity in Christ, and, and that only happens together. Let's remember who we really are. Let's think about who we really are. A spiritual house being built together. Because that's a family. That's a place where we can flourish as family. That's a place we can invite others into as guests in our family. And again, you do that so well here. Keep it up. Keep it up. And that brings us to the second description of who we really are in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices. So secondly, who are we? We're a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Again, to understand who we really are, we have to understand who Jesus is. Look at what Peter says. He says, these spiritual sacrifices we offer are only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've got to keep coming back to him again and again and again. It's not stated explicitly here, but it's implied. Christ is our great high priest. On the cross, he offered himself up once for all as a sacrifice, shedding his own blood to pay for our sins. I've said this many times before, but it's February now, so some of you, if you're keeping up your Bible reading plan, if you've done one for the new year, you're either in Leviticus or you might be approaching Leviticus soon, 
And then that's when you fall off of your yearly Bible plan and then next January pick up back in Genesis, right? On January 1st. Because it's so hard to get through Leviticus. You're reading through this book and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is never going to end. It's sacrifice after sacrifice. I'm so glad I didn't live in Old Testament Israel. All they do all day long must be to offer sacrifices. I mean, my goodness, that must be all they ever did. When am I ever going to get through this? That's the point. That's the whole point of the book. Just be encouraged. If you're having trouble getting through Leviticus, that's the point. You're supposed to have trouble getting through it because the point is you're supposed to look for something better, something that can actually cover and atone for your sins, something that can actually deal with the heart. And that's only in Jesus Christ. And then he comes on the scene as the great high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice to pay for sins fully. And finally, it is finished. It's done. The blood's been given. And in him, our great high priest, we too are a priesthood. Christ fulfilled that whole system of sacrifices in the temple so we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. The only sacrifices left to offer are spiritual sacrifices of our lips, of praise and thanksgiving, of our lives devoted in service to God. Peter, if you look in verse 9, fleshes out this theme of what it means to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. And again, I keep going back to all these scriptures, but that's because Peter is just dripping with the Old Testament here. Peter quotes from Isaiah 43 in Exodus chapter 19. He says in verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In the Old Testament, God delivered his chosen people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And he tells Israel, Exodus chapter 19, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God set his love on Israel. He he set his love on them. He chose them. He set them apart from the other nations. Why? Because they were such a great nation. They were such a mighty people. They were insignificant. No, just because he loved them. He set his love on them. He set them apart from the nations in order to be a light to the nations. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. I like the way the song that we sang earlier put it. I think that's a great description of Israel's priestly calling. With one voice, we'll sing to the Lord. With one heart, we'll live out his word till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come that he dwells in the presence of his people. That's what Israel was called to in their worship, in their witness, that others would see that their Lord is God, that he is the redeemer and that he dwells in the presence of his people. And here in verse nine, Peter shows us that in Christ, God has made you the church, the new Israel. Peter takes all of these categories of the Old Testament that applied to Israel and he applies them to the church, to the New Testament people of God. Look at these descriptors. You are a chosen race. So we're united not by physical descent, but by the bonds of peace and acceptance and love that we sang of earlier that comes from our faith in Jesus Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We have that same priestly calling that Israel did. 
to, to show the world, to show our neighbors the greatness of God through our worship and our witness. We are that holy nation meant to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. We are God's treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth. Again, why? Because we're so great? Of course not. Only because God has set his love on us. Only because of his mercy to us. The church is the new Israel of God. And we're going to see that next week in verse 12, when Peter says to the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. But the church was made of Jews and Gentiles. So how can Peter tell Gentiles to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable? How does that make sense? Because Jews and Gentiles are now the new Israel of God. That's who we are as God's people. And I think this helps us as we look at the scriptures, especially the Old Testament. Think about our call to worship this morning from Psalm 18. Let Israel say, that's speaking to you, the church. And so you all rightly responded. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, what does that have to do with me? Well, you're the new priesthood. So you rightly responded. His steadfast love endures forever. We sang from Psalm 133 about the bonds of peace and about the tribes of Israel gathering to worship. How does that apply to us? We're the new people of God gathering to worship in Christ. You're the new Israel. And you have a priestly calling. And Peter fleshes that out in the end of verse 9. He gives an example of one of those spiritual sacrifices. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So think about it. If you are just truly amazed by beauty, or if you are in awe of an experience that you've had or the greatness of something, what do you do? You proclaim its excellencies. You share it with others. If I eat at a great restaurant... Maybe I'll get to eat at Puyol one day. That'd be fun. Eat some tacos in Mexico City. But if I eat at a great restaurant like that and I have such a great experience, what do I do? I go home, I tell everybody about it. I proclaim its excellencies. If you're watching a sports game and you see this incredible catch, what do you do? You say, you've got to come see the replay. You proclaim its excellencies. If you see a band live, that, that blows you away. What do you do? You go tell other people about the band. You go tell other people about the concert. You say, you've got to come see this band. They have this great energy. If you hike a, a beautiful trail, what do you do when you go home? You tell other people about it. You proclaim its excellencies. You say, the waterfalls are just stunning. It was awesome. You've got to come see it. When we are truly appreciative of beauty and all of greatness, we proclaim excellencies. So I have to ask myself, and I ask you, are we enthusiastically proclaiming the excellencies of him? Of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? Are we proclaiming his excellencies in worship to God and to one another, but not only in worship, in witness, proclaiming his excellencies to our neighbors if we're truly in awe and appreciative of what he's done for us.
How does that happen? Not in our own strength, not by leaving here and saying, okay, I'm going to go proclaim some excellencies. All right, I'm ready. No, we've got to come back again and again to him. It's coming to Jesus to see him as our crucified and risen Savior, to see him as that cornerstone who first was rejected and swept away by the judgment of God so that you could be built on him. And in verse 10, Peter closes by by leading us to that awe and appreciation. Peter, once again, quoting from the Old Testament, this time from Hosea chapter two. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Couldn't be any clearer than that. Who are we really? We're sinners. Deserving nothing but to be cast away from the presence of God. But God has shown mercy in Christ. So come to him. Maybe this morning you need to come to him for the first time. Maybe you haven't come in a while and you need to start coming again. Wherever you are, keep coming again and again. To know who we really are, how we're meant to live together and in the world, we've got to look to Christ. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will you believe? Let's pray. God of mercy, I pray that you would continue even this week to remind us who we are in Christ. That we may live for him as we were meant to live. By your mercy and by your power at work within us. In his name that we pray. Amen.